in that final week where our Savior is making his way to Jerusalem. We just call this onward to Jerusalem. That's all. Luke 19, verse 28, And when he had thus spoken, he went before, sending up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he come nigh to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go ye into the village opposite you, in which at your entering ye shall find a colt, tied whereon yet never man sat, Loose him and bring him hither, and if any man ask you, why do you loose him? Thus shall ye say to him, because the Lord hath need of him. And they that were sent went their way and found, even as he said unto them, and as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto them, why loose ye the colt? And they said, the Lord hath need of them, and they brought him to Jesus, and they cast their garments upon the colt. They set Jesus thereon, and as he went... They spread their clothes in the way. And when he was coming nigh, even now, at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Now, all of us need to know that all of the Gospels have information that is specific to the author's purpose. The reason the Gospel of John contains the info that it does, because John wanted everybody to come to faith in Jesus Christ. That was his objective, and it's explicit. The final two chapters, he says so. When you read the Gospel of Mark, You're looking at a shorter version of what is the Gospel of Matthew. Mark, in particular, deals with a lot more of the demonic compressed together, Jesus delivering people. In Matthew, the majority of the book deals with Jesus' time in Galilee, follow his journeys, his travels. But in Luke... Starting all the way back at chapter 9, verse 51, all the way up towards his crucifixion, there seems to be this desire to talk about his, his, his determination to move forward to Jerusalem. So in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says, It came to pass when the time was yet come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. You look at chapter 13, verse 22. You'll see these words. And when he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And I reiterate, Luke 19, 28, he went before ascending up to Jerusalem. Obviously, Jesus was determined. And this verse, if it tells us anything, it tells us that he knew his task, he knew his assignment, and he was focused. He wasn't going to let anything deter him or distract him from getting to Jerusalem. And anyone that is burdened with the notion of redemption like he was already understands he's got to face a number of different trials. What was Jerusalem? was the place where the Lord said, 
A prophet should not be killed outside of that city. Jerusalem was a place where the temple was. It was the holy site for many people, much more conservative in the Judean region than it was in the Galilean region. That's where Jesus was determined to go. He understood that in order for him to fulfill his mission, the time of his departure, the time of his self-sacrifice, the time of his offering was coming upon him. And according to verse 28, he's making his way there. Now, in previous chapters, if we wanted to track his steps, we could show you where outside of Jericho, a blind man was healed. When he got into Jericho, a man climbed up in a tree that wanted to get a glimpse of him, a man by the name of Zacchaeus. A number of different teachings occurred. But from one station to the next station, he continued slowly going to Jerusalem. I think if God gives us any kind of insight as to what he wants us to do, he expects us to keep moving in that direction regardless of the obstacles. When you look at verse 29, it even tells you the name of two towns, Bethphage and Bethany. Why was Bethany significant? It's where Jesus will raise Lazarus from the dead. That's where Lazarus' sisters were. This is the place where People sat at the feet of Jesus, wanting to hear what he had to say. But what interests me in verse 29 is this fact here, that in his journey from the cradle to the grave, from Nazareth to Jerusalem, the site of his death and resurrection, he toured multitudes of villages. I don't know how many towns he ventured to. I have no idea how many villages saw him working miracles in their midst. But I do know this because of his travels, because of his teaching and preaching, because of his ministry, his following got bigger, bigger. People saw things they'd never seen before. Blind eyes open. Demon possessed people set free. The entourage that traveled with him had to be Great. I'm sure there were a whole lot of people with him. Luke chapter eight says the women traveled with him who ministered to him out of their substance, which tells us the ladies themselves had blessing and provision. Put it at the disposal of our savior. But if Jesus went to all of these villages and one by one people came to know him, then we have to be very grateful today that he came by the village we live in. Everybody in here wasn't raised in a big city. Some were, but however big, however small your village is, aren't you grateful that the Lord passed by there? Able to bring the gospel to you, to bring the message of salvation to you. And when you heard about Jesus and when you saw Jesus manifested through believers, got your attention. Came to pass when he was come near to Bethphage, place of figs, Bethany, he's at that Mount of Olives where later he'll ascend. He's at the Mount of Olives where he's talking to the disciples that final time. But at this particular point, he says to two disciples, I want you to go into another village. This tells us everything about timing and seasons. Jesus has been to this mountain before. He's prayed in it plenty of times. 
He's been to these other other towns on other occasions, but he knows now that the time of his departure is at hand. He has to make preparation. Psalm 31 verse 15 says, my times are in thy hands, Lord. And the scripture says to everything, there's a season, there's a time. And at this particular occasion, this is when he makes preparation for this final week. How has God used our time? How have you used the time that God has given to you? People say that according to the scripture, man's strength is about 70 years or so. God may give him 10 more, make it 80. But what have we done with our time? When Jesus had come to the Mount of Olives on other occasions, he didn't send any disciples anywhere. This time he is. I think sometimes when we know the future and we can see what's up ahead and God gives you that kind of insight, it changes not only your perspective on life, but also changes your activity. You do realize that your desires change as the years of your life accumulate. That when you were five and six years of age, you wanted things that you would not have needed when you were newborn. That when you became a teenager, you wanted things that you wouldn't have even thought about when you were five or six. And when you were in your late 20s and early 30s, your agenda had entirely changed. Quite naturally, by the time you reached the winter years of your life, you're not even craving the things you wanted when you were in your 30s and 40s. So our desires change as the years accumulate. I I don't know that I've ever run into anybody who was in their late 80s saying, you know, pastor, the thing I want more than anything else is to have another mortgage for a house. Never met anybody that's saying that. But you find a lot of younger people that are stepping out to buy a home, to build a home, to prepare a place, you see. I don't think I've met anybody who was over 55 or 61 or 62 that ever came and said, Pastor, I want everybody to lay hands on me and pray. What are we praying for? I want to be a mom one more time. 62. I don't think I've had that happen too often. Desires change. People get older. So in this instance in Jesus' life, in his career, he's come to a point now where he realizes he's got to face Calvary. It's an inescapable thing. It's an obstacle. He can't go around it. This isn't something he's going over. He can't go backward. He can only go forward. And he realizes that. And he tells his disciples here at the foot of this mountain, there's a village over there. I want you to go and prepare yourselves. Get that coat. It's tied up. Now, this this tells us again that God has knowledge that we don't have. And and sometimes he shares that knowledge. That's the good thing about God. He knows what we don't know. Wouldn't want to serve a God that I had to tell him what to do. Wouldn't be worth having a God if he if he had to say to me, now, Daryl, what's your advice in this situation? He knows exactly what should happen because he sees the ending from the beginning. The one who said in Genesis one verses three and four, and he spoke the word and these things happen. He knows exactly how to handle your situation because he saw it before you ever encountered it. You're not facing anything that he hasn't already foreseen. 
And if he's already foreseen it, then I can tell you there's provision because provision from the Latin means that he has seen it beforehand and already supplied what you need. That's what it means. So here we are. And the Lord demonstrates the knowledge that he has. And these disciples are listening to him. And he talks to them about this village. Now I wonder when uh, he told them that what their thoughts were. Because obviously if you obey God, then you believe God. But whenever you hear from God, you've got to make a decision. Do I believe him or do I not believe him? But if you choose to believe him, you've got to do something now with your trust and your confidence. And the Bible talks about works that correspond with faith. And if you say that God has dealt with my heart and spoken to me through his word, spoken to me through a dream, spoken to me through a tongue or prophecy or interpretation, spoken to me through a baby's cry, if somehow God has gotten your attention in order to communicate to you, you've got to determine whether or not you believe it. And if you believe it, you have to act on it. You have to do something with that word. God makes us stewards over the information that he provides. And do you realize that sometimes when God reveals things that he brings into our knowledge, new discoveries. Now these folks had probably been in this village before and never thought about there being some cult there. And they certainly never thought that Jesus was going to need one, but they turned and started walking away from the king. And as they moved away from the Savior, whatever kind of conversation they were having, once they got to the entrance of that particular village, lo and behold, there's the colt, a young male horse. Yeah, they saw what God told them they would see. Jesus told the disciples on one occasion... Somebody had asked him about paying taxes. He said, I tell you what, you go down there, cast your fishing line in the water. And he said, when you pull a fish up out of that water, I want you to thrust your hand in that fish's mouth. There's going to come out a coin. And you're going to pay taxes with that. Now, folks, I don't know how many thousands of fish were in that sea. But in that little sea of Galilee there, when they cast that line in, pulled that fish out, It was just as he said. This is how it is with God. When he gives a word, he doesn't lie. The Bible makes it very plain. He's not the son of man that he ever needs to repent. He's not a man that he should lie. We've had plenty of people lie to us. Let us down. People have promised you they'd do this. They gave you your word or their word. They would do that. but They let you down. But God is dependable. God is the one whose word you can stand on. And so having heard that, go into the village. They got there and they said, look, look, there it is right there. There's the coat tied up. And these people walk into someone else's yard or business area and start unhitching the horse. What would you have thought if you'd have walked outside or came around the corner and saw a couple of disciples of another man or some people you didn't know and they were untying something that belongs to you? You probably would have had questions just like 
This gentleman had questions, but here's what we know. Jesus had already prepared an answer for the one that would have a question because he knew not only the animal that was in the village, he also knew the person that was in the village that would ask the question. Nothing is outside his scope of knowledge. He knows about everything. Now, some of you, I'm sure if... um, if pastor were to come to your house, if you lived out in the country or something, and you saw me untying your favorite horse, you'd probably have something to say about it. And if you saw me in the middle of the night unchaining that dog that you love so much and then trying to carry it off, I think some of you'd have something to say about that too. See, he's down here on the front row for sure. And I certainly don't want to mess with Sister Phyllis and her cats, you see. So, yeah, so you you understand that people have questions when you start taking what doesn't belong to you. But Jesus had already given him given them an answer that would satisfy the owner and said, the Lord hath need of them. Who would have ever thought God had a need? God needs you. God needs me. In that sentence, if it does anything, it ought to add some value to your own life. To know that you're important enough to God that he has a need of you. Now think of the colt. This colt was tied. This colt was hitched. They're coming to grab it. And according to the scripture in verse 32, they went their way and found it was even as He had stated to them, returning to what I said, God doesn't lie. He tells the truth. You have to get the truth from his lips. You get the truth from the word of God. If you want a word from God, read the Bible. If you're interested in hearing from God, read the Bible. If you really want God to give you direction for your life, put your nose in the book and read the Bible. Read it in the morning. Read it in the afternoon. Read it at nighttime. If you want Jesus to speak to you along your own journey, read the Bible. I think God give you a clear word. Well, verse 33 has that question again. Verse 34 tells us one more time the Lord has need of them. Why, why would God need a colt? Well, he's got to fulfill a prophecy. The Old Testament tells about Jesus climbing up on an animal and riding into Jerusalem and the people are praising him. And if you track his ministry from the time he started at 30, right on to the resurrection, you'll find there's one verse after another he's fulfilling, even to the point of being on the cross saying, I thirst. His life was continually fulfilling scripture. How could people A thousand years before, 600 years before, 800 years before, know that these words that they were writing would be uttered by Jesus Christ. But Jesus, who was a master of the word of God, because he himself inspired those men to write the word of God. He climbed up on that cross and he's going to be the one making sure that every one of these things comes to pass, just as he said. The colt. Belonged to someone else. The disciples came to the village, unhitched the colt, and verse 35 says they brought him to Jesus. Now that's ministry, folks. 
That's ministry. They took an animal that was under the ownership of another person. Brought it to Jesus so that it now could become the possession of the master. And the master is going to use it as he's making his way into Jerusalem. But first the thing had to be unhitched so he could be removed from secular things to be used for noble purposes. Now we're talking about a young male horse in this instance. But what kind of a post were you hitched to one time? What were you tied to? What was the bondage in your life that held you? Could it have been a bad marriage? Could it have been some kind of addiction to alcohol? Think of the people today that can't even get out of bed hardly without sticking something in their arm just to get themselves up and ready to go. They're bound and they're tied to a post. They don't have the ability to even free themselves. Two disciples come to unhitch the colt. But imagine if the colt would have been the kind of person that's kind of beast that's like some of us. If the disciples would have went to try to untie him and he would have went to kicking at them and gnawing at them to keep them from opening or from untying what they had there along that post. And so, so many of us are like that. Here's somebody trying to tell us about Christ, trying to witness to us about Jesus. And here we are kicking and here we are rebelling and we're gnashing on them with our teeth. I don't want to hear about your church or about your God. That's a rebellious animal. The beast, flesh-like nature, still tied to a post. And a lot of people are like that, even to this day. 30 years later, they've had one disciple after another come to them, to witness to them, to bring them out of that. They didn't want to hear that. And we all were like that at some point in our life. But you know what usually happens? You bother an animal long enough and it kicks and it moves and it struggles, but eventually it tires. I've seen some of them wildlife documentaries where them wildebeest are trying to get away from certain predators and may wander out there in the middle of the water or something like that. And is just treading water, doing whatever it can to try to stay alive. You know what that predator does? He doesn't go out there in the water. He just kind of stands there and just waits by the shoreline. Because he knows eventually when you're tired enough, you're going to come out of that water and into the predator's mouth. You see? And God realizes that in all of our earnestness and in our flesh and kicking and rebelling, that we're determined we're going to fight against God. And God, he keeps lovingly, but yet gently reaching out to us because he knows eventually somebody's going to get tired. I'm tired of how I'm living. I'm tired of my job. I'm tired of this. I'm exhausted. A lot of people are like that. And, and, and I can assure you that today, there's probably some people took some razor blades and slit their wrists because they're tired of life. There's probably some people that turned in some resignation letters on their job because they're tired of their job. There's some people that called a lawyer today because they are tired of living like they live in their marriage. 
probably somebody that even took off and ran away from home in the middle of last night. And they packed a few bags, maybe put something in a little knapsack, and they wanted to get away from a house that was too terrible. All of these people tied to a post. And God uses folks like you to go into the worlds of these people that are under the ownership of another master. to Minister to them and bring freedom to them. How do you do it? Introduce them to Christ. Yeah. Bring them to Jesus. That's the key. I think that little statement in verse 35, they brought him to Jesus. Those five words give us the mission of every Christian and every church. Even John the Baptist said he must increase. I must decrease. What is ministry? Introducing people to Jesus. What is our witness? Introduce people to Jesus, to tell folks about the king, to let them know about Jesus. Now, there are different aspects of Jesus' ministry in life that people need to be introduced to. But nevertheless, we bring them to Jesus. That's what Philip did. He found Nathaniel. He said, Nathaniel, look, we've been looking for the Messiah for a long time. I think I found him. And when Nathaniel came, Jesus looked at him and said, oh, my goodness, an Israelite in whom there's no guile or deceit. He said, how in the world did you know who I am? He said, before Philip called you, I saw you sitting up under that tree. See, Jesus saw the colt before the disciples ever got to it. Jesus saw the man under the tree before the brother or Philip ever got to him. And I can assure you it's the same thing with Andrew and Peter. When Andrew went and got Peter and brought him to Jesus, Jesus already said, here's what your name is, but this is what I'm going to call you. He saw you, he saw me, a little boy in Cleveland, Ohio, on the east side of Cleveland. He saw me before I ever became a preacher. What did he say of Jeremiah in chapter one? I knew you before you were formed in the womb. What does Ecclesiastes 11 and five says? As you don't know the direction of the wind or the spirit, nor do you know how the bones of a baby grows in a mother's womb. So you don't understand the works of God, but he maketh them all. See, he knew Abigail before she was even conceived. God doesn't have any accidents. In the plan of God attached to that child is plans and purposes and the providence of God. He saw you before you ever believed. Yeah, before you ever made the decision to follow him. So this whole aspect of bringing him to Jesus certainly is a picture of what we're supposed to do with anybody that we're witnessing to. We're introducing them to the king. They say Billy Graham preached to more people on planet Earth than anybody else. I don't know. 200 million people I've heard people say. But I do know this. You listen to his old crusades and when he preaches, it's a very simple gospel message. He's introducing people to Jesus. He is telling them that Jesus saves. He will help you in every circumstance, in every situation. And as a little kid, I'd lay on the edge of my bed watching those crusades in my mother's bedroom when my mom and dad weren't even interested in God. They had a little son that was interested in God and they'd watch Mr. Graham preach because I wanted to lay at the foot of the bed and watch it. 
He's just talking about Jesus. Well, that was my way, I thought, of having a man witness to my parents, bring them to the king. It's Billy Graham. See? What about what about Oral Roberts? Preached a lot of years under that tent. Held more than 300 crusades all around the world. Some crusades four days, some crusades 18 weeks. Preaching Jesus Christ and telling people that Jesus heals and bringing one person after another up on the platform and laying hands on people. They say more than a million people laid his hands upon. Stories of deaf ears opening up and blind eyes being opened and him grabbing people and folks coming up out of wheelchairs in foreign countries. What was he doing? Introducing people to Jesus. See? Aspects of Jesus that people may not have ever thought of. I don't know. T.L. Osborne preached to a lot of people during his lifetime. I don't know of another evangelist that's preached outdoor crusades in big fields like him consistently from the late 40s or early 50s right on up to his death in 2012, 13 or whenever it was. But 100,000 people, half million people listening to him preach. And all he did was tell stories about Jesus in the simplest language from the gospel. Didn't lay his hands on anybody, but at the end stopped and prayed. And in his prayer, you start hearing the yelling and the screaming as people were saying they were being healed. And lepers with withdrawn hands having them healed. Crippled people that had drugged themselves for miles to sit out on the field in a muddy field with the rain coming down sometime. Instantly healed. He never touched anybody. This went on for 60 years in a world with people saying God doesn't do anything like that. Jimmy Swaggart. Been on television since 1971, more than five decades. No preacher in the history of televangelism been on television long as he has. Preached in crusades all across this world in huge stadiums and auditoriums. 70,000 people, 20,000 people, 110,000 people holding one meeting after another where after he introduces people to Jesus, he preached the baptism of the Holy Spirit and said, wherever you are, you can be filled with the Holy Ghost right now. And thousands of them set on fire and filled with the Holy Spirit in foreign countries. It's difficult for me to go anywhere on this planet that I don't run into somebody that knows of a church that was built because of money that came from that ministry, of a Bible school that was built because of money from that ministry. Again, what did they do? They brought them to Jesus. Now, there were a lot of people they could have brought them to. They could have brought them to a number of different esteemed rabbis. They didn't do that. They didn't think that the rabbis would have needed the cult. He wasn't to be honored. They weren't to be honored. But God doesn't want us as disciples to introduce people to Buddha, but to Jesus, Jesus alone. God doesn't want us to introduce people to Muhammad other than to compare and contrast so that Christ shines as the greater of the two. 
We're not called to introduce people to Joseph Smith and Mormonism. But to tell individuals about our Savior. And when we do that, I think we're fulfilling the command and the call of God. So, of course, as you can see, he brought the animal to Jesus. First thing they all did was they put garments upon the coat because his life now is subjected to, submitted to, and he's possessed and owned by the Savior. So here we come from the darkness of sin and from the darkness of this world, and we're totally debted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is it that God does with us? He takes away our sorrow and gives us a garment of praise. He says, put this on. Put this on. Why are we going to need that? For the same reason that this animal needed. He's going to bear the king of kings in the midst of everybody. And everybody needs to know how wonderful this man is that I'm carrying. Because it's not about the animal, it's about Jesus. I remember the, um, this animal was tamed and submissive in the presence of the Lord. And this is what God expects out of, out of us. I've shared with you that story of Alexander the Great when he was just a little boy. His dad, Philip, and them were out breaking horses. And Alexander watched as the horse was kicking and they couldn't keep anybody on them. Finally, Philip and some of his men got weary. They're going for their lunch break or whatever. And Alexander inquired of his dad. He said, would it be OK if I tried? His dad said, absolutely not. You'll be killed. We don't want you to try to have to deal with this animal. And sure enough, Alexander the Great waited for them to all go sit down and start with their meal. But he had observed that the problem with the horse was that the horse was skittish, timid. The horse was afraid of his own shadow. So Alexander the Great, he turned that horse so the horse was facing the sun and he couldn't see his shadow. So now the, the horse had a calmer spirit about him. By the time Daddy and them came back, there was Alexander the Great riding that horse. And that was the horse that Alexander the Great rode all the way throughout the east, conquering one kingdom after another. Say that horse was so submitted and trained to Alexander the Great that when he walked up to it, that horse would stick that leg out and just bow down and let him climb up on him, kill anybody else and attack anybody else that came near it. Alexander the Great Spirit so dominated that horse. That's what God wants from us, to be submissive like that. That is what it means to be meek, to allow God to reign in our hearts and in our lives. So Jesus climbs up on this horse, and as you can see in verse 36, he went his way, people throwing their clothes down in the pathway, and folks start shouting, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Palm branches, see, palm branches. They're waving as they're praising God. But imagine, imagine if this horse with Jesus riding on its back would have suddenly got a, you know, swallowed a, a, a pride pill and would have been going down that hill and been thinking to himself, oh my goodness, look at all these people out here applauding and, and clapping. They, they're really excited about me and all this new attire I have. 
But, but here's the thing, folks. They're, they're not excited about the cult. They're excited about Jesus. And you may be gifted, you may be talented, and it's wonderful that you're being used by God. But folks, we're not excited about you. We're excited about Christ. It's not the arm of the flesh that makes us strong and beautiful. But it's these discoveries that we learn about in these different villages that Jesus takes for himself. Because of this cult, Jesus is able to ride into the city. So through people like you and me, Jesus is able to be a chef in a cafeteria. Through you and me, Jesus is able to serve in the military, be a coach, to teach, be a housewife, house husband. Through, through people like you and me, Jesus is able to sit on the bench in a court, able to work in a medical facility. Yeah, because he's just looking for somebody that will allow him to be what he wants to be through them. Through people like you and me, the Lord's able to drive a bus, sweep a floor. He's able to say a prayer for somebody. Yeah. It just all depends on how we want to submit to God and allow him to have Blessings and the full measure of those blessings in our life. And I think to the degree that we allow Jesus to manifest himself through us, the praises will continue. I know why some people don't praise God. They don't see Jesus. They don't see Jesus in their own life. They don't see Jesus in the lives of others. But I tell you this. If we really get a revelation of who the king is, it's hard to keep us quiet. You hear me? It's hard to keep us quiet because this this isn't something you can press down. Somebody say to you, well, I, I just don't think it takes all that. You don't need to be as noisy as you are and, and you don't need to be praising the Lord like you do with a loud voice. And I don't know why you have to say hallelujah or amen or anything else. Why don't you just be calm and dignified and reverent and dead? But if the master is passing by, how can we be that way? Yeah, I honestly believe that for folks like you and me that know God, it ought to be verbalized in our praise. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I don't think anybody should ever sing any louder than you if you love God. Ever. You should be able to lift your voice unto the king. Nobody knows the story of how he untied you from that hitching post where you were attached like you do. And having known that, nobody can ever put a smile on your face like he can. And in the end, of course, the Pharisees, they heard all this noise and they said, look, we don't carry on like this in the synagogue. You need to open up your mouth and tell these disciples to stop making all of this noise. And I love what Jesus said. He said, I'm telling you right now, they stop crying out. These rocks will start making some noise. I'll have a choir from the stones out here along the highway. Somebody's going to praise me one way or another. That's what Jesus is saying. I will be glorified. I will be magnified. But we have to understand that we shouldn't let a rock cry out for us in our place. Yeah. So trust God and believe that the king is a wonderful and a powerful God. Amen? Amen. I'm telling you, that was one more ride going down that hill. I wish I could have saw that. Hmm. Yes, I'd have been shouting, making 
all kinds of noise. I, I don't know if anybody's ever asked you to be quiet, but I know I have been noisy in churches before. I mean, to the point that I've made so much noise that people, you know, turn and look. But I don't care. I really don't. I don't care if if I was that blind man outside of Jericho that wanted my eyes open and having been blind from birth or blind for a long time. And then my eyes are open. Do you really think you're going to stop me? I'm praising God. I can tell you I had something better than that happened. God opened my eyes as a kid and he took the blinders of sin off. And having done that, all I want to do is praise him for the rest of my life. Amen. Amen. Come on, let's stand. Let's stand. Let's just take just a few moments and just offer unto him a few sacrifices of praises and let him know how much we appreciate him and adore him. Heavenly Father, you are wonderful. Thank you for being our Savior, our Deliverer. You came to our village, Lord. You found us in distress and in difficulty. You saw us, Lord, in the middle of the muck and the mire. Yet you reached down with that long right arm of salvation and you retrieved us. You delivered us, God. Thank you, God, for sparing our lives when we were on a pathway of self-destruction. Thank you, God, that we didn't die somewhere on drugs or somewhere because of alcoholism. We thank you, Father, that you rescued our marriage, oh God. We thank you that you turned our life around and took us from being nobodies to being somebody in the kingdom of God. And Lord, we're so grateful that you have a need for us. You need our lips. You need our hands. You need our mind. You need our eyes, oh God. You need our legs to carry you through this region telling people about how wonderful your son is. And you're worthy, God. You're worthy, God, of all the praise, all the adoration, and all the glory, God. We honor you and bless you. In the matchless name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and everyone say, Amen, Amen, Amen. Isn't it a great day?